0: Hi and welcome to the Writers Forum on WRBH. I'm David Benedetto, and today I'll be speaking with Maria Simple, former television writer for a series such as cult favorite Arrested Development, and author of the best-selling novel Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and the recently released Today Will Be Different. How are you doing today, Maria?
1: I'm doing great, thank you. I'm
0: glad to get you in here on this 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 brilliant and semi-cold Monday morning.
1: Yes, it's warm to me, so <laughs> <laughs> well, it's
0: good. Glad you're glad you're here in New Orleans. Um... So tell me a little bit about how this book came about, this latest one.
1: I was uh, needing to come up with an idea for my new book. It was overdue, and I'd been out on the road a lot touring for Where'd You Go, Bernadette, and it it kind of kept dribbling on. And it was time for me to stop talking about the former book and start writing the new book. (laughs) And Bernadette was really written in a burst, in a very... Uh, emotional burst. And I was feeling, because my first novel had um, not sold very well, and it was a big disappointment to me, and I felt very ashamed of that and this kind of private shame that my first novel had been such a failure, I, at the same time, had moved to Seattle and didn't fit in very well or was basically taking out all my personal problems on this entire city of people I didn't know and was deciding that I didn't like them just by the looks of them. And in, in that moment, in one moment, I realized, wow, that's kind of funny that an artist who can't get over failure instead of taking responsibility and moving on instead turns poisonous and angry about a bunch of moms at school who have never done anything to her. And so it was kind of from that root of pain and of kind of toxic self-pity and and rage that I didn't know where to direct it. I wrote Where You Go Bernadette, who was, you know, she was a failed artist, a failed architect, who had this shameful chapter in her past. and And instead of moving on, she became a shut-in. Mm-hmm. And so th- that really was how I started writing more You Go, Bernadette. Now, so with the new book, I knew on some level I needed to tap into something that was very powerful and and that had a lot of emotional resonance to me and, and probably not good emotions. You know, it should be bad emotions. It should be the stuff that I'm ashamed of that I don't want people to know about. And so... I didn't really know what to write about because I was now a successful author and I lived in a city now where people generally not just liked me but (laughs) admired me and wanted to be my friend because they love my book so much. And so I decided that what I would do was start my new book by going to my writer's room early one morning where I like to write Mm -hmm. uh, when I'm almost still in a dream state. And I thought, I'll just take out a yellow pad and a pencil and let me just see what happens. And so I ended up writing what turned into the first page of my new novel. I had no idea that I was actually going to be so efficient and productive and actually write something. But I'll read to you what I wrote that morning. Please. Today will be different. Today I will be present. Today, anyone I'm speaking to, I will look them in the eye and listen deeply. Today, I'll play a board game with Timby. I'll initiate sex with Joe. Today, I will take pride in my appearance. I'll shower, get dressed in proper clothes, and only change into yoga clothes for yoga, which today I will actually attend. Today, I won't swear. I won't talk about money. Today, there will be an ease about me. My face will be relaxed, its resting place a smile. Today, I will radiate calm. Kindness and self-control will abound. Today, I will buy local. Today, I will be my best self, the person I'm capable of being. Today will be different. And so once I wrote that, I realized, wow, I think that's my new book. I think I'm writing a book called Today Will Be Different. And it's going to be about a woman who, even though she has all the components of happiness, She still is disappointed in herself and feels like she cannot love well the people she loves the most. And I thought it seemed clear to me that this would take place in a day and it would be kind of inherently funny because someone who has to steal themselves and repeat over and over and over this mantra after she has set the bar so incredibly low for herself that yeah. e- even clearing this lowest possible bar <laughs> makes her have to just like really get it up as if she needs to go and fight a heavyweight ch- uh, fight or something. Yeah. It just seemed inherently funny to me, the way that Where'd You Go Bernadette felt inherently funny. Yeah. And so I used that kind of emotional truth that I I was feeling or almost trying to hide as the the jumping off point, and then I wrote kind of a wild narrative about Eleanor Flood and her misadventures during one what should be simple day.
0: no, I love it. I love it. That's great. Um one of the things about your writing is you turn to funny really easily, and a lot of people really admire your work for uh, those those comedic turns, but the truths held within. Were you always like that in your writing, or did it was it something that evolved over time?
1: I think it evolved over time. As you mentioned, I was a TV writer for a long time. And in TV, even though I think I probably brought in as much of my real life to the shows I was working on as as anybody Mm -hmm. did, and I think even to this day people remember it fondly that I would come in and tell a story about my life and say, let's do a show about that, that really is not the right form for it. There's so many constraints in television, and there's Mm -hmm. so much... Um, so many masters you have to serve. You know, it's a, it's 22 minutes. You have to service all the actors. You have to make get it past the network, the studio, the censors, uh, the advertisers, the actors themselves, the other writers, mm-hmm. you know. And so at that point, the, the budget issues, I mean, I could go on and on. I don't want to. It'll give me PTSD, <laughs> yes, to go back. But there's so many constraints that almost the last thing you're thinking about is finding the truth, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it, but so I never did as a TV writer. I think as a TV writer, I learned how to, um, I learned story Mm -hmm. and I learned maybe, um, rhythm or something, but I, I, in a way feel, and I, when I say rhythm, I mean comic rhythm, but actually I feel like I learned that more from novels than from, than from sitcoms because I don't feel like I write sitcom-y jokes. Even when I was on a sitcom, I was never able to come up with the jokes just in a snap if we needed an al- alternate joke. You yeah. know, there were like what they called joke people. You know, I was more a story person. Yeah. And there are joke people who, if a joke doesn't work, an actor would come over and say, I need another joke. And there are people who I admire just beyond uh, who will just be able to just start firing off a bunch of alternate jokes, which I never could. And so I felt like i I got story and I got hard work i'd say from from television yeah. and it wasn't until I started writing books that I think I really found my voice, and I really d- realized that that keeping to the truth could be funny, yeah you know I actually never what's so weird about a night it seems like I'm being disingenuous, but I'm actually not trying to be funny. I'm trying to be true and I'm trying to be entertaining. You mm-hmm. know, I have a thing on my desk that says, is it true? Is it entertaining? You know, and and the truth is just, the true to me means, is it something that happened to me and that I have clarity about? Mm-hmm. You know, that, and it's not, it's not only did something happen to me, but is this something that I've observed that I can make a case for that seems l- like it's coming from my unique perspective. So that that's the truth, that's the truth. And then the entertaining really has to do with the story, I would say, is that am I putting it across in a way that's going to keep the pages turning. Yeah. It's not just some indulgent exercise of something that I want to to put out there just for my own narcissistic purposes. You know, I'm really <laughs> there for you. I'm really there for the reader. I feel um very animated about that. Like, that's really what gets me in my chair every day. And that's, I think about, I want to have, I want to deliver a really good reading experience to someone. So that comes first. And all the other stuff actually fits into that. Um, You know, when the other day, someone was asking me about my social satire, and I was, um, I, I felt so, stupid because I blanked and I just said, when have I ever written social satire? Like it never occurred to me. And they explained, you know, they they rattled off 40 things that were social satire. And I said, oh, I guess those are social satire, but I never came at them as social satire. I thought, oh, I need to, I need to make a case for why in, in, in today will be different. For instance, Eleanor Flood is, um, I need her for plot purposes to steal, a parent's set of keys, okay, which is a pretty big move. It's a pretty crazy, horrible thing to do to steal someone's keys just to mess with them, right? And it's a very important plot point. And, again, that's what I was writing towards is the plot point. And so I think, how do you possibly justify stealing a stranger's keys? Um, And I started thinking about it, and it's Eleanor with these parents, and I thought every time I'm with parents – I I think that they're younger than me and they look better than I do and they just have it together more than I do. And they seem to love their kids in a much more simple, clean way than I do. You know, I go into school and I'm constantly conflicted about all the volunteering and I can't do it just purely (laughs) with a smile on my face. You know, I'm always I just have to bring this this conflict into it. And so I thought, wow, those are enough buttons to push that i think could 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 send my my narrator eleanor in like get her a little off kilter that she's just now faced with all of this self-loathing the minute she walks into this room of young moms who are like really um really um clear about just that this is the choice they made to be moms and they've all given up their careers for their kids and yeah. they feel good and sanctimonious about it and so And so I have a whole thing about young moms and about parent volunteers, which I think is considered social satire. But to me, it wasn't. It was how do I get my character to the place where she would want to put the hurt on one of these people kind of irrationally. And that's why I wrote that. So it's funny. So I, I that I really come to the humor, I'd say, more from a plot level.
0: Yeah. No, I think that that's just incredibly interesting. And I, and I love what you say about, you know, truths being inserted with these entertaining story arcs, because we like to hold um, some of the great novels or even movies and films of our time as these high esoteric places. But if you look at 100 Years of Solitude, if you look at The Seventh Seal, they're hilarious. They're yes. really funny as well. But we take that out of it when we put it on these these. Pontificating platforms, right?
1: Yes, and and I would further that by saying that that what what we also take out of it is what page turners they are. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I teach fiction, and I am always about story, 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 story. I have the fiction writing, and I'm always telling my students story, story, story. And I think that they think, oh, here comes, you know, the bull in the china shop who has bad taste who's trying to impose story onto our beautiful little precious, you know, navel gazing works of art. Yes. And so I, I always start out by, uh, I, it's funny. I used to call my, my class, the first 20 pages. And then I realized that's just giving them way too much time to yeah. get the story started. And now I literally say the first five pages. There you go. Yeah. Because 20 it's like, no, come on, you got, it. and now I swear my next class is going to be the first page because I do, um, I Xerox, uh, the first pages of classic works of literature, yeah. you know, of of Lolita, of um, uh, b- a book I love, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, of uh, Anna Karenina, of Madame Bovary. You know, these yeah. are just kind of undisputably great works of art. And I just, I Xerox the f- maybe one or two pages at the most and say, look at what what's being set up on this page. Like, look at the questions that are being raised. Look at the 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 answers that you now want only in page one, that you're going, wait, what is, you know, oh, it's a little odd. I want to find out what it's odd. Or, oh, wow, that person wants this thing. Are they going to get it? You yeah. know, even in page one or page two, you're actually very invested in the story. Mm-hmm. And so I, I maintain that you, none of these works of literature, uh, would be what they are without a strong... story sense, but it's no one really thinks in terms of story.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's hard. It's not the natural thing, especially when you go into it the first time, and I, I love that you're you're approaching it from this way that story should not be your enemy. Story is how you compel all the other things you want to include in it, right?
1: Oh, very much yeah. so, yeah, and, and, and it's it's not... To me, it's not an overlay, which I think a lot of people just think, oh, I have my novel and now I have to come up with a story, you know? <laughs> and, so, and so my thing is that story is character, you know, that you have to... You even that it's only about a character. It's like, what does the character want? How's the character going to go about doing it? And then you have your story. It's not this kind of false thing that you put on top of it. It has to start with the strong characters and the desire. And now in the first page um, that I wrote that that I read to you, the reason why I thought this was a novel is because it actually starts out with, even though it's a very small list of what she wants, she's like, this is what I want to do today. Yeah. And this is how I'm going to go about it. And it's a very clear statement of a desire, which is really kind of story 101. It has to start with a desire. And it doesn't have to be the desire to for world peace. It can be the desire to just change um, to not wear yoga pants all day long to yeah. try to just kick it up a notch in terms of your personal appearance. As l- I always find, as long as you have a character wanting something, then and and they have a plan for how to go about getting it, you're instantly. Um, instantly hooked in. Yeah. And you're just like, "Oh, how is it going to turn out?" And that's really all story is. Mm-hmm. Is is the is the, uh, for the reader saying, "Hey, how is it going to turn out?" And it's unbelievable to me how many things I read where they're not even giving you that. Yeah. You just think, "Wait, what right do you have that I'm turning the next page?"
0: Right. Yeah. No, I agree completely. Uh, I think that's really interesting. Um writing it in the time frame of this one day. Did you find that harder? Uh, were you focusing more like on minute details and things or was it easier for you in some ways?
1: It it was it was a challenge that that I had set out for myself clearly, you yeah. know, and but but I think that with every novel you write, I think at some point you have the parameters and you must have the parameters, you know, it it's because it has to be a coherent kind of self-organized work of art. And it doesn't mean on the first page or even in the first draft. And well, let's hope by the, by the end of the first draft you know what it is that you're writing. But, <laughs> but you know, I think that you do, um, that you do uh, have to have constraints, and I like constraints. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I find more often than not um, that I'm using the analogy that children like boundaries, you know, and I feel like writers like boundaries, readers like boundaries. I think boundaries are good, you know? So, so to me, I like having the boundaries. Now, when I had a book, I I decided that I would write a book that would take place in a day. You realize, okay, how big can the stakes be? That's really my, was going to be my main problem. Then immediately I realized that the stakes would have to be low. um, Because if if you're going to write a credible version of a of a book that takes place in a day, especially one off of the page that I just read. The, there it's if if her life radically changes completely by the end of the day, it would be a real disconnect from that first page. Yeah. Like I wouldn't have the courage of my convictions. Like it's actually quite courageous to say, okay, this is going to be the world of my book, this kind of very small world. Because I feel like the 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 default setting is just to jack things up to make it kind of quote unquote, more interesting for the reader. And so I was trying never to to make the stake. I feel like it's lazy once you start just making the stakes high. Yeah. You know, this again goes back from my TV writing, you know, is that you start often series start out like very observational, and then they just get kind of big and grow big and, and out jumping of control. The shark, right? <laughs> it's jumping the shark. Yeah. And, it, and that is really real laziness on the parts of writers. Yeah. And as someone who's been a lazy writer, um, and has been on those shows that have jumped the shark. I really know the tendency and where it comes from. And it's easy. It's, 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 it's laziness. And it's not like you do it because your lead emotion or, or driving principle is laziness. It's just that you're overwhelmed and you're tired and you're and it just seems like the easiest thing to do. And there's a million other battles. So you just do it. And so for me, it was about how to keep this small scale Uh, compelling, you know, and I feel really good. I know that my book is a page turner and I was actually happy. It was funny. Someone sent me a link of some, I, I don't know where it was from, but it was like books you can read in one day for your book club. And mine was on it. And I thought, Oh, I like being on that list. Like to me, I, and then if someone was like, hey, don't let this upset you. And I was like, wait, what's wrong? I mean, great. my I know, like I wish someone would. I was like, I'm going to buy the rest of those books and read yeah. those in a day because I love it. I feel like that's that. And so many people have said that about where you go, Bernadette, and about today will be mm-hmm. different as they read it in one sitting. And to me, I, I you actually want people to read in one sitting because you don't want them taking two weeks off and then – there's important little clue you planted in that they will have forgotten. You yeah. know, I th- I think that actually is very self-serving for a writer to be to to, to um give people books that they can read quickly and want to read quickly because mm-hmm. it's it makes it it means that they're reading the book that you uh, as as you've written it as yes. you've meant it to be read.
0: No, I think that's this continuous feature. Yes. Um, well, before we, we run out of time, I'd love if you could share a uh, another segment from the book.
1: So I'll set this up, and it's a um, New Orleans section. In fact, when the book takes place in a day, there's one exception, which is it's a very micro, um, m- microscopic view of one day told in the first person by a very flamboyant, kind of over-the-top, neurotic woman. Now, there's about 40 or 50 pages in the middle of the book where – she hits her head, and she there's kind. Of, she goes into this flashback, which is kind of the secret to why what a lot has has gone on, and and unlocks some of the kind of mysteries of her behavior. And it actually takes place in New Orleans, and it's a section called Trouble Troubadour. And so it's written in third person in a very different voice from the rest of the book, but I love uh, the voice that it's written in. And I came down here for a few days to research it, and. I will tell you that 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 to, to set this up is that Eleanor Flood, who's my protagonist, she's married to Joe, who's a doctor, and this takes place about um, ten years or eight, eight years before uh, the the action of the book. And what has happened is Eleanor has a little sister named Ivy, who's really kind of a mess and and beautiful, a former model, um, kind of an actress, but really has gone downhill and has never really had a job and has kind of gotten a little too old for the for her uh, act. And that along comes a guy named Bucky Fanning, Barnaby Fanning, who is a um the heir to a New Orleans fortune. He's from one of these really big New Orleans families, mm-hmm. but he's a ne'er-do-well and has never uh really worked but is very critical and, and really a piece of work. He's a, he's a, he's the captain of a, a a crew that I've named chaos. And so this is, uh, this is the scene where Eleanor and Joe, uh, and Eleanor is really shocked that this horrible guy, Bucky, who always wears black and is very strange and hard to figure out where, um, she's still in kind of shock that, that her sister has married this, um, this guy uh, or, or excuse me, is getting married to the guy, and now she and Joe come down to New Orleans for the engagement party that's held in um, in Bucky's um, in a house in the Garden District. Lovely. The engagement party was held in New Orleans. One of Joe's rules: the first thing you do in a new city is take the public transportation. He and Eleanor chugged along St. Charles in the overstuffed streetcar. From afar, the live oaks seemed to drip with strands of Spanish moss but up close they were just Mardi Gras beads, months old, stuck there. Eleanor and Joe hopped off at 3rd Street and crossed. The Fanning Mansion was on the good side of the avenue, the riverside. 2658 Coliseum stretched the entire block, its iron fence skillfully wrought into stalks of sugarcane. A plaque told the history, but it was too dark out to read. The mansion door swung open courtesy of a courtly black man in tails with white hair and white gloves. He was Mr., the husband of Taffy, both uniformed servants to two generations of fannings, and hopefully a third, now that Bucky had returned from New York with, of all things, a bride. Eleanor and Joe entered. The living room was a swish with ball gowns and tails. Just as an O was about to escape Eleanor's mouth, She'd worn flats and a knee-length dress she had no time to iron. A mint julep was thrust into her palm. The shock of the frosty silver tumbler slapped Eleanor's face into a smile. Eleanor Joe! It was Ivy wearing a pleated chiffon gown, lime with orange flowers and sleeves that hung like calla lilies. She gave it a twirl. 1972, Lily Pulitzer. It belonged to Bucky's mother, Did you know that if you admire something, the person has to give it to you? That's the Southern way. Ivy took Eleanor's hand and introduced her around. The frailty was still there, but without the undercurrent of unpredictability. No, being adored by Bucky, and she was adored, no question, the way his soft gaze infused her, the delight they took in each other's words, the way his forearm fit the curve of her waist, had softened Ivy's edges. One might say... She'd grown into her frailty. The South was a good place for that. Politicians and oil barons, lawyers and historians, shipping magnates and ne'er do wells, to a person they loved. Ivy had fully embraced her, and by association, Eleanor and Joe. Eleanor had never before felt so fascinating. In turn, those she spoke with became fascinating, and in the and so the bonhomie spiraled up, up, up. The air felt cozy with kindness and laughter, not like New York where people you talk to perpetually scan the room for someone better. Manners Eleanor grasped through the haze of mint juleps weren't a function of hollow snobbery and misguided airs. They were a profound act of generosity. Granny Charbonneau sat sternly in the corner, both hands firmly on the long handle of her cane. At one point, she flapped her hand at Eleanor are you the sister? Granny Charbonneau barked. Maybe you can convince Bucky to stop dressing like a hangman. At the food table, Eleanor couldn't get enough of the hot spinach dip. Taffy leaned in and shared the secret ingredient, Campbell's cream of mushroom. Bucky's mother led Joe over. This one I just want to slip in my pocket. Earlier in the day, she cut her forearm sharpening the blade of the push mower. Mr. is back, and what's the alternative? To hire a team of gardeners? I can cut my own lawn. Later, Eleanor found herself alone. She dropped into a fussy loveseat. The pillows hit her low back in just the right spot. Bucky's Pomeranian Mary Marge leapt onto her lap and curled up. Hello, you, Eleanor said to the pooch, startled by how thick-tongued it came out. She was unaccustomed to the relentless salvos of alcohol. Chunky leather scrapbooks lined the coffee table, their sumptuous padded covers begging to be opened. Eleanor obliged. On the first page was a truly weird photo. The royal court of chaos. Grown men and women in outlandish costumes, their faces morbidly serious, more wax than human. Bucky in beaded gold satin shorts. Gold shirt, white tights, rouge cheeks, a platinum blonde Prince Valiant wig, and a fountain of ostrich brothers springing from his gold headpiece stood among the similarly lurid king, queen, pages, and maidens. Those parties start next month. It was Ivy with Bucky. I couldn't be more nervous. Bucky's making me take curtsy lessons so I don't embarrass him before the court. Ivy, my love, Bucky said with mock exhaustion. It's not a party. It's a ball. Finally, someone to do all my thinking for me. Ivy mimed plucking her head off her shoulders and handing it to Bucky. Bucky, Eleanor said, straining to enunciate. I want to thank you for making my sister so happy. My life will have been a failure if spent making your sister happy, Bucky boomed. I won't rest until the sun and the moon redden with shame, knowing Ivy outshines them both. We're flying to Italy to have me fitted for white gloves, Ivy said. If you're sitting in the front row, the gloves have to be over the elbow. Don't you love it? It's on the front row, darling, Bucky said. One sits on the front row. Please don't hold it against me, Bucky told Eleanor. But the future Mrs. Fanning and I must beg our exit, the times Picayune has arrived. With Bucky gone, ruddy-cheeked Joe joined Eleanor. Wow, he said, the pillow hitting his back in the sweet spot. I know. Make room, make room. Lorraine, Bucky's second cousin, nestled between them. Get that rat off you. She pushed a snoozing Mary Marge onto the floor and waved over some champagne. Can you believe how seriously everyone takes this, Lorraine said, of the scrapbooks? She opened up to her year. There she was, the queen of chaos. Look how thin I was. I know what y'all are thinking. It's money, tomfoolery. And you're not wrong, but I tell you, it's a gas. Across the room, Bucky arranged Ivy's train for a photographer. Behind them, a portrait of Bucky's ancestor, P.G.T. Beauregard the Confederate general who ordered the first shot fired in the war between the states. Oh, Barnaby, Lorraine said with a mixture of fondness and spite. Anytime he vexes you, and he will vex you, just remember he's a troubled troubadour. It's a nickname we gave him. We were in the car when Kurt Cobain shot himself. The announcer came on the radio and said, Troubled troubadour, Kurt Cobain, has been found dead. The name just stuck for Bucky troubled troubadour. He's not so bad once you realize it gives him great comfort to know where he stands. It was Irish coffee now, and who wasn't comforted by knowing where they stood? The birds with the cascading tail feathers on the wallpaper and the buttered-colored ceiling. The gold mirrors and the jute rugs. The effect wasn't pretentious. It was comforting, just like the blue and white striped loveseat. Who would have thought blue and white stripes went with butter and birds and gold and jute, but it worked. So did being looked in the eye when people spoke to you, and teens in tuxes conversing with adults. Why not waiters in tails and white gloves? Why not Bucky's mother and her friends in decades-old dresses, sun-damaged skin, frosted lipstick, and low, chunky heels? Why not flowers from the garden and ding julep tumblers and food that's good but not great? When Dixieland music started playing, the splash of the trumpet and the belch of the tuba confused Eleanor at first because it was clearly live, but not coming from inside. Then, faintly through the garden windows, Eleanor saw them, joyous black kids in short sleeves and neckties, playing for the party, outside so it wouldn't be too noisy. They could see in, but Eleanor couldn't see out. Why not that, too? Thank you so much. Thank Uh you.
0: Um, I think there's so many small little nuances in there that, you know, living in New Orleans and, and you know, having been aware of that scene and, and, and a part of, uh, some of those things on the exterior, at least, uh, you nail a lot of things on the head, which is great, but in this really amusing and kind of absurd manner without like taking it out of its like actual substance, which is really cool.
1: Oh, good. Well, you know, it was interesting because I came down here to research that, the New Orleans kind of social world yeah. and I didn't know much about it other than the pictures I saw of the the pageants and the courts and everything which are really lurid and kind of crazy and you can't believe <laughs> adults do conduct themselves that way and then go to go to jobs as bankers and things and you know are, are proper members of society but when I came down and I did meet the, the, the some of the people in this world and they were all so kind and so generous and so wonderful And it was important to me as I was writing the section to present it as kind and wonderful um, and these people. And there's one very bad egg in it, this guy, Bucky, who's really just causes an enormous (laughs) amount of trouble. So it was important to me to kind of, you know, and I think in that passage, I wanted to convey that Eleanor kind of came from the outside expecting to judge it, you know, and starting out with, oh, there's the black man answering the door, you know, and she's a, a kind of rankled by that, thinking like, oh, this is racism and this is not what she's used to. But she goes down there and kind of recognizes that everyone's so kind and the manners and she's never felt so good. And then the drink starts to, the drink starts to kind of soften the edges. Yeah. And then, and then that's why book ended that at the end with the black kids outside and they're outside, they're not inside. And she's like, Oh, what's so bad about that? You know? And so
0: it's like her kind <laughs> it's of complete transformation. Exactly. Yeah. And
1: her kind of moral kind of degradation or, or not, you know, yeah. I really, I, I want to make it ambiguous because mm. she hasn't done anything that bad. She, all she's bought into is the kindness and, And who's the? So I wanted to make it kind of ambiguous, but sinister in the same way. But really, yeah, exactly. (laughs) But the sinister, hopefully, you know, comes from Bucky, the the bad egg.
0: Yeah, no, I I love that. I love that passage. Um, we don't have a lot of time. I did want to ask you one more question, if you don't mind. Um, if you weren't a writer, this is a a two prong question. If you weren't a writer, uh, what would you be doing, or what would you want to be doing?
1: I feel like I am a good manager. I like, you know, I've always thought that I would want to be an executive assistant. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Is I feel like I like to be in on the action and I'm very organized and I can get things done. I can put my thinking cap on and make stuff happen. So I would like to, I've always, I've always pictured myself as being the person who follows someone with a clipboard and make stuff happen. I think that's so, cool. Yeah, I think that would be a fun job, and I think I'd be good at it. I, the
0: second part of that question is, one uh, I enjoy asking, is if in this alternate reality where you were this executive assistant, <laughs> who would be the author that wrote the book surrounded by your character?
1: You know, there's there's a, an English woman named Nina Stibbe, S-T-I-B-B-E, who wrote a memoir called Love, Nina, and then wrote a novel called Man at the Helm. And I feel like our concerns are very much the same. Yeah. And our humor is very much the same. And I feel like she's over in the UK doing what she does. But I think she has the combination of sweetness and and then takes the knife out a little bit, which is what I think I do naturally. Yeah. And people who know both of us say we're very similar people, you know, almost kind of the exact person in our... In, the way we're just just our, our concerns and our take on the world. So I would have I would think that she might step in and write my books.
0: All right. I like it. I'll take it. <laughs> well, that's great, Maria. Uh, I wanted to thank you so much again for coming on. This was a pleasure to have a conversation
1: with you. Thank you.
0: That was Maria Simple, author of Today Will Be Different, as well as the best-selling novel, Where Do You Go, Bernadette? And that's our show for today. You've been listening to the Writers' Forum on WRBH, which you can catch every Thursday at 4.30 p.m., every Saturday at 8.30 a.m., and Sundays at 1 p.m. If you like what you heard, please check out our SoundCloud page for an archive of all our original programming. That's at soundcloud.com slash WRBH reading radio. Also, you can download our programs via the iTunes and Google Play podcast sections. I'm David Benedetto. Until next time.